Hi, thanks for listening to the Arizona Equals Conversation. I'm Gene Woodbury. I'm the Policy and Communications Director for Equality Arizona and the host of this podcast. Each week on the show, I sit down with an LGBTQ plus person living in Arizona to talk with them about their life. When we created the show, it was born out of a frustration with storytelling projects that focus on an individual and interior journey. I try to understand my guests as people at the nexus of a whole network of relationships. And that could be a relationship to a person or to a community, to your neighborhood, to your city, or to your state. These are the things that really define us as individuals. And with the Arizona Equals conversation, that's exactly what I want to highlight about the queer individuals I interview on the podcast. Today on the show, I speak with Tin Subson. I first met Tin at an LGBTQ plus event hosted by Metu Amankala of Arizona AANHPI for Equity, who I spoke with last week on the podcast. You can find that interview and our entire archive at equalityarizona.org stories. Or you can follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the podcast player of your choice. Today's guest on the podcast, Tin, is a student, a political activist, and a producer on her own podcast through ASU, titled Chasing Cherry Blossoms. With many of my guests discussing the pandemic, I found it to be a particularly transformative time in their lives, not just because of the societal upheaval, but often for coincidental or almost coincidental reasons, like moving, graduating, coming out, finding a job, and more. Listening to Tin, I felt that her experience trying to balance both her Asian American and queer identities reached something of a breaking point during the pandemic. But I think that you should hear about it in her own words, so I'll let her introduce herself and get the podcast started. Hello everyone, my name is Tin Supson. I am a Youth Engagement Fellow at the Arizona um, AANHPI for Equity, and I'm also a civic leader uh, for 18 by Vote. So you were telling me actually that you were running a podcast affiliated with ASU um, just earlier this year, right? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's an ASU affiliate podcast that I helped create. So I was a junior producer with um, my advisor, Professor Higashitani, uh, Rena Higashitani. And um, basically what we did was we uh, talked to various uh, Japanese American community leaders and people who are really involved with the community as a whole. So that was in downtown LA, and that was also in um, Arizona, kind of like local too. And we highlighted uh, Japanese American women specifically, and like told their stories and talked about like the Asian American journey. So that was really fun. Oh yeah, that's amazing. And what was your process for reaching out to guests, uh, especially locally? When you say kind of local, what do you mean by local? Yeah, so we talked to um, just like a few people. Well. Specifically, my professor was the one that did a lot of the outreach. Okay. So that was like really helpful. And but I wanted to kind of be that bridge between like the Japanese American community and like people who are outside the Japanese American community because I'm not Japanese American myself. So I'm like half white, half Thai. Um, but that would 
I think one of the most memorable guests that I had was uh, Cindy Kishiyama Harbottle from the, she's the vice president of the JACL, the Japanese American Citizens League, the Arizona okay. chapter. Yeah. Wow. So it was really um fun like talking to her and talking about because we have very similar um kind of like being asian american in arizona is like a very unique experience but we kind of had similar kind of journeys and stories so that's what i was kind of with the local and then we also talked to you know various people like we talked to some professors at asu and we also i'm just there's a, such a long list i can't remember everyone's oh that's name, exciting but every guest was important i'm just gonna put that yeah. out there how long did the podcast run for Right. So I was hired in February and it ran up until May. And right now it's still a work in progress. So it's kind of going through the editing process and everything like that. But um, I was a lot of people think it was like a project, like a school project, but I was actually like hired on and specifically me. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also had like a co-junior producer who we were both not like film students or anything like that or podcast students, I guess. So we weren't part of that. Um, department so we both have very different like I guess career aspects but we still want to do this podcast what is your um, focus then if it's not that kind of media production what are you working on right so that's actually a very interesting question (laughs) (laughs) because I feel like most uh, like most college students I'm still kind of up in the air but what I specifically want to do because my major is medical microbiology believe it or not oh wow that's great yeah I know when I tell people that because we even um, talked to a few film students in LA and they're like oh so what do you like auto engineering major I was like no medical microbiology (laughs) um but it basically I basically want to hopefully go into the genetic counseling field I don't know if you know too much about that uh can you tell me a little bit about it yeah so genetic counseling is basically it could be a variety of things it's kind of like med school in a a way because you know you can be in different um areas or fields oh I see Yeah. yeah so um Basically, you would look at people's like family history and then also you look for markers in, well, it depends on what you're looking for, but genetic markers. So you look at like their DNA sequence. So, so they might give like a blood sample and then you analyze their DNA and you look at maybe like a family tree. Yeah. And then where do you go from there? Yeah. So it depends on like, like I said, what you want to do. But specifically what I want to do is work with like uh, rare genetic diseases. So you would test maybe if you have someone in your family that has a rare genetic disease or just a genetic disease in um, general, you would see how probable it is for you to have that. And the, but also there's other um, areas where there's like cancer genetics, so you can see how probable it is to have oh, um, wow. cancer in your. So it's very a taxing uh, job as well, just like emotionally. But um, I, I can imagine, and I can imagine sometimes people might not want to know exactly so that is i'm glad you brought that up because that's like one of the biggest debates right so would you tell someone that they have a genetic disease or genetic disorder that's going to alter their life if even if there's like a probability of it because then they have to change their lifestyle completely right yeah or would you just like let them know and then if it happens it happens right so it's just very very um it's kind of like a new field too. So there's a lot of debate on like bioethics. And I just took a bioethics class that was just kind of like talking about genetic counseling. I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. that's what I want to do. Oh, that's, that's yeah. such a great entry point exactly. like through ethics right. into the field. Exactly. So it was just very, um, you know, it's something that, because I originally was pre-med. So okay. that was kind of the, 
kind of the route for a long time, but then I realized I wanted to, I still want that patient contact because before that I wanted to get my PhD. So it just keeps changing. So um, that's the classic college experience, I think. Honestly, I'm a junior right now. So it's like, okay, I kind of need to figure out what I'm doing, but I mean, (laughs) I still have a little bit of time, but that's like kind of like of um, a in-between between like medicine and just kind of like the more analytical side of like research and stuff like that. Yeah. And I like that it's actually still very personal and relational, um, which is similar to that podcast. I want to back up for a second. Mm -hmm. Is that podcast something people can listen to now or is it something that's going to come out in the future? The one that you did at ASU? Yeah. So it is, um, we have two sample episodes because I had a like presentation kind of showcase for it in uh, March, I believe. And we had these like 10 minute sample episodes. So you can listen to those, which is mine's on there, you know, really plug and everything. Oh, nice. But, um, yeah. We can also, you, it should be out sometime, I guess, like in this semester, this fall semester, just because of like editing and everything, because we have a okay. lot of content. So it sounds like it. What's the name of the project? It's uh, Chasing Cherry Blossoms. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. I'll make sure to put the information in, in the show notes yeah. for people to find that. We would love that. <laughs> you mentioned that you were able to connect with the guests around what you described as a really unique experience of being Asian American in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that unique experience is? Right. So to my, cause I even just talk to different people or of like Asian American descent or just like around the country. And it seems like Arizona has like probably one of the smallest Asian American population compared to like how big the city is. Cause there's not a lot of um, just, there was kind of like a big community uh, going around the Chinese cultural center. I don't know if you know, it's like somewhere it was like near like I think 32nd street or something like that okay but um that was kind of like a meeting place for almost all like the asian americans in phoenix but then they like closed it down because they wanted to build apartments so uh, okay. yeah build apartments slash condos so that was a real loss at that exactly point in time. so that was when um i started feeling I was already feeling isolated with being in the Asian American community because I am biracial mm-hmm. and I'm also Southeast Asian. So there, you know, it's like minority of a minority of minority, yeah. right? And then to add on to that with the podcast, I'm also queer. So it's like right. even more minority. So um, then not having that place that we can gather or we can just like feel at home and no one can like make fun of us for like the food we're eating or like, right. you know, you can see people that maybe have like similar experiences than you. That was like a, kind of what pushed me into advocacy because I was like okay my area especially the area that I live in is getting gentrified and we're getting rid of all these like places that are so culturally significant like why is this happening and why do they not care that you know they're displacing us basically right there's all these layers of marginalization you're losing your community center you're marginalized through the specific cultures that you're connected to Mm -hmm. and then you're also queer And, you know, in the theme of this podcast, I'd really like to ask how that kind of works. Do you feel marginalized in your community spaces because of your queer identity? Do you feel marginalized in queer community spaces because of your racial identity? How does that play out for you? Yeah, 
I talked a little bit about this uh, just previously at the Healing Circle, I know, but but I just reiterate it. Um, Basically, I feel like I have to hide my identity sometimes. So in queer spaces, I have to kind of let go of my Asian American identity because I my the issues that I face as an Asian Americans is not put in place there because there's a lacking intersectionality and then within the Asian American community I have to kind of hide my queerness because I've had people go up to me or like they'll be like oh you know we're very accepting of the LGBTQIA um, plus community and then when I just like even just joking around being like oh, uh, I think that girl is really pretty. They're like, mm, that's kind of weird of you to say. So uh, it's just like, where do I belong, right? Because yeah. if I can't be truly myself in any of those communities, like where's my community, right? Yeah. Well, and for listener context, you mentioned this healing circle. This was an event through Arizona AANHPI Equity. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to that and meet you there. And that seems like a space where you do get to have all of that is that pretty rare and then how did you find and get connected to that group yeah i that i would kind of say that's the only time that i felt accepted only time yes because i've been um you know like i said i've had past experiences with both the asian american community and also the queer community of just being outcasted you know whether one way or another and i bet a lot of people can relate to that right especially queer people of color because you're just like like i said you don't know where you belong so having queer people of color specifically queer like asian americans it's like i didn't even know that we existed you know (laughs) at the point because um it's just very strange to i mean not strange but it was very like comforting to see that there's people who struggle with their Asian identity and struggle with their queerness and they don't have to choose either one. They can be both. Right. Yeah. So, um, I've never had a space like that before. Cause I've been to like my pride coalition in high school and they would just like disregard anything that I would bring up being like, you know, we talked about in the healing circle, kind of the coming out story and just like all these things that a lot of people don't, um, factor into the Asian American identity as well. Well, tell me a little bit more about that. I know we've talked about it before, but that coming out experience, I think sometimes people have one impression of what coming out is going to be like, Mm. and you had a really different perspective that I I really appreciated. Um, Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So that's kind of funny that I'm doing a podcast and I'm not out to my family yet. So, and it's very like, you know, it's not that I'm worried that they like specifically my, my really only my close family to me is my dad. Okay. So um, I'm not worried that he's not going to like accept me or anything like that. It's just, I feel like the, he's from an older generation. So understanding, you know, the different identities within the LGBTQ plus IA community. So it's not just like lesbian and gay. There's the whole spectrum. Right. And it's very hard for him to grasp sometimes but um, I think it's, he's a very accepting person. So yeah. I know that he would love me no matter what. I just feel like it's not important for me to bring it up, which is kind of, when I say that, keep on saying that out loud, I'm like, oh, maybe it is because I identify it so much. I'm on this podcast. So obviously, right. right. It so, is important to you, but then it's a question of, well, how does this enter into my relationships? Like this really close relationship with your dad there's other important things in that relationship, right? Like in any relationship. Right. Um, so it makes sense to try to balance that. And I'm curious, I think, 
you're clearly still working through this, but how do you approach that balance? What are some of the other important things about those family and cultural relationships that you have to weigh against this really important part of yourself? Yeah, I think we, um, specifically because I'm not very connected to my Asian American culture, which I think a lot of people can relate to, especially, like I said, in Arizona, because there's no resources. So there's like not a lot of, there's really not a Thai community at all, really, in Arizona. If there is, I don't really know about them. (laughs) Um, So I think the aspects of just like change is kind of hard. And it's like not specifically for my family, but maybe like my, like, you know, the older people in my family, it's hard to kind of grasp something that's like not in the norm so i think that's a lot of asian americans can relate to that so it's like we don't we don't want to cause any conflicts because you know family is usually all we have and we have such a big emphasis in family and there's like um that's kind of like how we feel at home right because we can't feel at home in other spaces like i said is kind of feel marginalization so family is always something that you can come back to right And I think that's something that maybe white queer people, it might be part of their experience, but it might not be in the same way that it's, it's sometimes the only refuge or the only community Mm -hmm. space. You said something I thought was really interesting where you said, I didn't know people like this existed and you're one of those people, (laughs) right? but it makes sense when you don't have these resources and you don't have these community centers, your family is the one place that maybe you can have the food that you want to have and not be judged for it. Things like that. Yeah. And I think, too, being, like, half-white myself, I've seen the dynamics be different in um, between, like, you know, the white community and the Asian-American community because we have, like, emphasis. In the Asian-American community, we have an emphasis on food, and that's, like, how we bond with people. But, you know, maybe, and that's, like I said, if you don't get invited to, like, those food dinners or anymore, and that's, like, kind of an insult to you now, right? So um, just kind of having that connection with family And just knowing that, like you said, you have something to go back to and everything like that. And I'm really, actually, I'm a big advocate on chosen family as well, which is kind of rare in the Asian American community, just because, um, like I said, I have that experience with the white side of my family. And I'm like, okay, you know, family is family too, but also we have to set boundaries. So. I talk to like my friends who are Asian Americans and they don't really understand setting boundaries or is trying to kind of, you know, make sure that they're being fully themselves, which I like I said, I'm kind of a hypocrite a little bit, right? Well, so, it's a process, yeah. right? I'm curious when you're going out and you're creating chosen family, mm-hmm. do you use that template of your own family? Are you able to bring that into that process? Yeah. That's a good question, actually, because I think um, with my chosen family, we all are people of color or most of us are people of color or we have a big emphasis in like just being identifying with our culture kind of. Okay, yeah. But we've all been kind of ostracized one way or another from our culture. A lot of my friends are part of the um, POC like community. So we need to know like... Like I said, we we need to know when we're safe and we need to know like how to kind of, I guess, balance, like you said, queerness and like being part of the POC community. So, yeah. When you've mentioned um, these experiences you have interviewing people for the podcast, finding community has pushed you into advocacy. And it seems like part of that advocacy is just saying, 
we're losing our community spaces. Mm -hmm. And part of it is just finding ways to create community. So how long has that been going on for you? And what are some of the challenges or maybe really wonderful things you found through that? Yeah, so it's been a long journey. I think I've always had the mindset of like something's wrong I need to do it I need to I need to change something and I don't I just never knew what I could do but then I think around the podcast that's what kind of pushed me because um I actually kind of removed myself from the Asian American community for like around two years because there's just like a really bad incident where I tried to find um community within like at least the ASU uh, sphere and it did not work out for me and it was just like maybe just the wrong people or the wrong time and it was like during quarantine too so it was kind of like was this sort of at the beginning of your time at ASU right so it was okay. before I even got into ASU okay. so I kind of connected with a few people and um, it was just very it I was trying to be someone that I wasn't so I was just trying to kind of be like oh more I guess Asian than I should like I really am because I'm like, oh, I have to be this certain way. So that's why people can accept me for who I, I am. So um, that's I just like didn't want anything to do with it. I just was like, OK, I'm just going to, you know, keep my head down and work through it. And then I actually took an Asian American psychology class. And I realized that not every Asian American person feels the way I am with like the marginalization so like oh, okay fascinating yeah and there's like this like uh berries acculturation model um which tell me a little bit about that yeah i definitely can because okay. it's my favorite thing to talk about oh amazing yeah so it's basically there's like four quadrants and it's like how close are you to your host country and how close are you to like your indigenous or native country and there's like um, assimilation, so you completely accept your host country and then you uh, leave any like native uh, cultures behind. And then there's like integration, I believe, where it's like you kind of have the best of both worlds. And I know there's one other one, but I'm not sure. And it's basically, um, I have to think about it. But well, I'll definitely- well, I think I can picture it. Yeah. Um, two axes and then the four quadrants. Exactly. and. There was the one that stuck out to me the most was the marginalization. So that means that you don't feel any connection to your native country and you don't feel any connection to your host country. And I was like, oh, that's me. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then we started talking about how those people have um, in the marginalization section have more, uh, I guess, um, there's more cases of like depression and they're more likely to have depression and isolation and just like all these mental like uh illnesses because yeah. of their feeling marginalization and i was like oh maybe that is me I so mean, it's, it's alienating exactly w where do you see a lot of the people that you're able to meet on that quadrant yeah and it's like that's a good question too because i've met so many different people now i would say in my high school i would think that they were either in the assimilation one or the marginalization one because there was not a very um, I think there's probably 10 Asian Americans in my high school and it was a pretty big high school. I think our graduating class was like 500 people or something like that. So, you know, yeah. but it's just, it makes me really sad to see that, um, we have to choose that side, right? I, I, ideally I would want everyone to be in integration, right? And they would be like, you know, connected to their host culture and yeah. native culture. But, um, that's unfortunately, I see a lot of people in the marginalization category in Arizona. And it seems like partly it's through a lack of resources and opportunity, not because people 
wouldn't choose that, but because sometimes they just don't have the opportunity to choose that. Yeah. And going back to your question, I never answered um, with uh, AZ, AHPI for equity. Mm-hmm. I feel like they are like exactly what I was looking for when I was like in high school. I was like, I need a have to have a community that like understands my struggles and they don't dismiss uh, just kind of like intersect like because I know a lot of people don't have an emphasis on intersectionality and they just dismiss concerns or anything else or if you feel you tell someone you feel alienated they're like oh but you're you're in this space like how it's a safe space but it wasn't truly a safe space yeah so um I actually it's a funny story I found them through like Instagram and I saw like their fellowship and I was like okay and then I met them at the ASU like culture night which was like for the Asian, I think APASC was running it. I think the Asian American Pacific uh, Culture. It's that a sounds, long acronym. Yeah, it's a lot yeah. of acronyms. Yeah. So, um, and then I got to meet Niall May, who I didn't even know were Niall May at the time. Um, and I was just like, oh, like this is something. I saw them immediately and those like the vibes are great. So I was like, oh, I actually want to apply to this now. So I'm really glad I got the opportunity to do so. Yeah, Niall and May are really incredible. And I think the work they're doing at that organization is is really incredible and kind of unique in a lot of ways. There aren't spaces like that for a lot of communities mm-hmm. um, where you get to bring different aspects of your identity in and actually see all of those things in, in a real way. Yeah. And it's just like, I've never had, like I said, a space that was like, you're not just talking to a wall when you're talking about these issues. They actually are listening to you and they're absorbing it. And there's like offering comfort and not even comfort too, like solutions too. They're like, right. you know, how can we make this, or at least Arizona, a safer space for, you know, any community, just like any marginalized community, including like Asian Americans, including the LGBTQIA plus community. So, yeah. Well, so you talked about not finding that until really recently, having some trouble early on in college and even before college, and then in high school, having a really marginalized experience. Mm -hmm. What was your high school experience like um, in terms of navigating queer identity and Asian American identity is it something that your school had room for an opportunity around or was it all just marginalization? Well, so we did have the Pride Coalition, which I think um, in the later years, because I know the people who took over it, it was very, they were out there doing things. They were very involved with the community because I think they even were involved with One in Ten, which is like an organization that I think ANHPI might be involved in as well because we had a speaker from there. So one in 10 is amazing. They do a lot of work yeah. with queer youth. Yeah. That's how I kind of got introduced to them. And I've been kind of like, uh, they've been on my radar. I really love what they're doing. And I, you yeah. know, I really want to support them in some way, but <laughs> it will, I'm trying to go to some of the events that they're hosting and everything like oh, that. Um, but they were, it was kind of sad because there was no support within the high school. So, um, there is an incident where it was Pride Week, and I'm going to be really candid with you. Okay. So there is an instance where there was Pride Week, and um, the Pride flags were taken down, and uh, basically by its students, there was oh. a group of students, and they put they put Trump flags up, and it was just um, I I just didn't understand why they were so hateful because it wasn't no one was hurting anyone, no one was doing anything. It was just having the celebration of a community that was different than maybe what your people are normally used to, which I 
think people should be pretty used to the LGBTQIA plus community by now because, you know, we're trying to get more accepted into society in general. Yeah. So just to have that mindset was like, oh, we're not as progressive as I thought we were. Yeah. So it was very kind of heartbreaking. Well, and that's scary, I think. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, what was the Pride Coalition focused on, uh, maybe outside of a Pride event? What were some of the activities or, or projects that it would work on? Yeah, so I was just kind of like, I, you know, obviously I said I'm not out to my family, but I'm out to like my friends and anybody, mm -hmm. like, because we just met too, so obviously yeah. I'm out to you. <laughs> um, but uh I was not out to anybody in high school. So I was just kind of like, I went to like one or two meetings or anything. Okay. And that was kind of, you know, in the beginning, um, when I was like my freshman year, it was just kind of like a standoffish club. Like I said, then I know some people who took over to it and it was just like a very safe space. Okay. So that was like a safe space, but also it wasn't, I still didn't feel comfortable enough to even like share my identity with people. It was just, like I said, maybe it was just my own journey that I was going on or anything, but right. it was, they did like a lot of events that I wish I attended, but I was just kind of scared to, honestly. So they did like movie night and they did, um, a, like I said, the Pride Week event and they worked with uh, other organizations that I was like kind of aware of just because they were like kind of like my friends running it. Oh yeah. So, um, but it was just something that I was not ready yet to be involved with. Yeah. So. And I think that fear can be a really real experience. You've talked about sometimes maybe overplaying aspects of your identity or underplaying aspects of your identity, trying to find your way just through society. Mm -hmm. And it seems like partly because these spaces are being taken away or threatened, you have to lean so much on your individual understanding of yourself instead of, well, here's people like me like when you said I didn't know people like this existed and you exist right. right but that is different knowing that you exist doesn't immediately tell you well here's how I can go out and be right. in society um, yeah I mean I definitely too think that the factor was that I didn't really feel safe as a person of color in um my high school so if I'm like, I don't want to add on to that. I don't want to add another target on my back, Yeah. you know? So, cause it's like, okay, I'm already a person of color. I can't change that. But with queerness in a way you can hide that a little bit and it's not good to do that. But if it, my safety is at risk, I will have to do that just because I can't hide that I'm a person of color. Right. And that's an important distinction. Right. You're able to hide your queer identity, whereas you're not able to hide that. You mentioned getting into ASU and a little bit before that, um, ha having some trouble connecting to community there. Uh, I think it sounds like some of this was really early on in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I know that unfortunately there's been a real, like statistically significant rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. Did that add to that level of fear that you were already experiencing? Oh, definitely. Like definitely, there was this time where so i'm like a little bit racially ambiguous like a lot of people don't know i'm asian until i tell them i'm asian so i was just like you know i i feared that something would happen but i was like okay if something happens like 
will people attack me? Do I kind of look Asian or do I, or they, can I hide this too? So that was just like the uh, yeah. amount, I think kind of the thing that I think about a lot is like, how do I kind of make myself look neutral as possible and just kind of protecting myself. So there's a point of time where I was like scared for my dad to even like go out to work during that time. Cause I was like, what if someone, you know, just decides that they want to do something like attack him. Right. So, um, it, that definitely, and it's kind of ironic because I feel like a lot of queer youth, um, especially, you know, kind of people close to me or just in general, I see on like TikTok and stuff, we kind of found our identities through the pandemic. So that's something very interesting because I also was like comfortable enough to say that I was queer during the pandemic. But before that, I would have never said that. Why do you think that is? I'm really curious because I've seen the same thing. I mean, obviously, there's always people coming out. So it's going to happen during the pandemic, too. But it does seem like there's something about the pandemic experience for a lot of people that helped them, actually, to open up and and explore their identity. I think, personally, for me, um, it was a lot of reflection, right? So it was like, do I want to kind of keep hiding who I am to, you know, the general public, even though, like I said, not out to the family yet, but that's fine. Um, (laughs) But um, do I want to, or do I want to live the life that I want to live, right? And it kind of, I feel like everyone kind of went down that spiral and like during, you know, the early weeks of like the pandemic and we're just like, oh, okay, you know, we don't know what's happening. The future's so unseen. So I just thought to myself, you know, I'm not going to, stop myself from fully being who I want to be and if I like fall in love with someone and they're not you know the opposite gender that's Mm going to be fine because I always thought about that and I know that a lot of people have similar experiences is like oh I have to you know even though because I do identify most closely to bisexual but I like the, the term queer best by told bisexual because people are like queer what is that so that's another thing with like the asian american community we just kind of have to like pick a label because maybe your parents won't understand that so um with that i just knew that you know okay i'm queer but then in the end i will probably be with a man just because it's easier and it'll be easier to explain to everybody explain to like my family and everything like that but then i was like well, what if I'm unhappy with that? So I just kind of, you know, I guess let myself be who I want to be during that time. Well, and I think it's interesting in the context of everything we've talked about. Early in the pandemic is this moment where almost all community opportunities are just fully taken away. Right. And it sounds like every time that happens, you kind of double down on saying, no, I'm going to go out and make this work somehow and i think that's one just really an amazing thing um but two i think kind of instructive about how we process identity and community uh, as like a conversation um moving forward now that you've made these big steps of getting involved in advocacy and community organizations what are some of your hopes for queer community and Asian American community in Arizona? Yeah, I mean, I I dream big. I really do. So I really want to focus on um, just making sure 
that you know like this is a big goal but i don't want anyone to feel the way i felt in high school yeah. like they have to hide themselves you know maybe even for you know a day they could have a place where they can truly be who they are and it doesn't matter like any of their background or anything they can just be themselves and i think that's kind of my goal with everything that i'm doing because like moving forward with um you know az and hpi for equity yeah. but uh i'm also working with this organization called 18 by vote right and um it's well, like tell me a little bit about that yeah so basically we um uh, encourage 16 17 and 18 year olds to vote and we do it through education but we kind of have uh kind of, I guess, hotspots in like six different locations where we have like different civic leaders, which I am. Um, and I want to kind of emphasize more on like grassroots movements and education workshops and stuff like that, because people don't realize that marginalized communities are affected when trying to vote. So, you know, and I bet you, you definitely have experience yeah. in that. Yeah. And because um, even with like the anti-trans laws that were just passed, and right. I really want to highlight on like, why is this happening now? And even um, from like a healthcare aspect, I know like monkeypox is kind of being marketed against like the uh, queer community, especially specifically uh, gay men or identify people who identify as men. So it's just very, I don't know. It's just like, I feel like uh, I want to kind of move forward from all this uh, discrimination and everything like that, but I feel like I'm keeping getting pushed back. Yeah. So my goals with that, sorry, kind of tangent. No, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to specifically with 18 by vote, I want to host like uh, education workshops for marginalized communities. Cause like I said, our obstacles are very unique and a lot of yes. people won't understand that. And they would just be like, Oh, just vote. But there's so many, obstacles when it comes to voting that are put in place by people in power yep. to keep a, our voices silent and that's not right we have just the uh, as much right as any other american citizen or a quote-unquote what they've received as normal but you know what is normal right yeah so it just um that's what kind of i would like to have is just acknowledging the issue because even acknowledging the issue is such a huge step for a lot of people and be like your feelings are valid yes with the trans community, there's a real problem around photo ID laws for, you know, voter ID laws. And then if you have something that's really restrictive in terms of you have to bring in a photo ID and maybe it doesn't match your current presentation or maybe not everything is updated and you can run into real discrimination. What are some of the obstacles to voting that maybe you've experienced or, or you've seen people experience or that you are aware of for, for the Asian American community? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing within um, my my family and other people's families, like Asian American families that I've talked to, is that a lot of people don't think their vote matters because they just are taught to keep your head down, don't cause any waves or anything, and kind of um, enforcing that model minority myth, right? I that, see, yeah. yeah. So a lot of people there's a stigma against like advocacy and activism because then you're kind of creating waves and you're not supposed to do that. You're just supposed to be like a good citizen, but being, having, standing up for other people is being a good citizen. Yes. Exactly. So it's just like they, but just that perception of, because it's been years and years and years of suppression, right? So there's like um, the Chinese Exclusion Act yep. and then there's just so many like voter acts or just like a lot of uh, Asian Americans, they're, 
they have distrust in the government, I believe, too, just because of the incarceration camps of Japanese Americans. So there's just why should we even have faith in the government when they've treated us like this for years and years and years and years? So they also maybe just don't know where to start or they're just so used to this like suppression. Yeah. So that's what I've seen personally. Well, and the concept of marginalization that you brought up in terms of not having that connection to the country where you live, Mm. as opposed to just sometimes when we talk about marginalization, we mean, a lack of opportunity or we mean not being able to express our full selves but that experience of i do not have an actual cultural connection on any level to the country where i live it's going to really change in the ways that you're talking about the degree to which you can even be involved on a civic level and so i really appreciate that perspective and all the time and everything you've shared um, thanks so much for being on the podcast with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is a blast. Thanks again to Tin Subson for being a guest on this week's episode of the Arizona Equals Conversation. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the podcast, just visit equalityarizona.org stories to sign up. While you're there, head on over to our events calendar, equalityarizona.org events. September is voter registration month for Equality Arizona, and we've got a lot of great opportunities to register new voters before the October 11th deadline. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps with our rankings, and that helps to share these stories with a wider audience. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to tune in next week.